This is Terrell Next on Neurotech, chasing breakthroughs from the bay to your brain. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Gene Bryant, who is a molecular biologist studying tumor classification. All right, so I have Dr. Gene Bryant here. How's it going? Pretty good. It's good. Just starting to get the lab going again after quite a quite a long shutdown. Yeah. How, how's that been with like COVID and transitioning? Well, it, we're here in New York City, and so it's been been pretty bad. <laughs> to be honest. Oh goodness. Honest. In fact, I I actually live in East Elmhurst, Queens, which is walking distance from the famous Elmhurst Hospital. So it's oh, wow. Been, quite close at hand. And I assume actually me and my entire family got it. Uh, oh, goodness. We were all sick in February pretty bad. I was mild, but the rest of my family was pretty bad off, you know, pretty sick. None of us hospitalized or anything bad like that. Okay, that's so, good. So, but yeah, it's yeah, it's been a little bit of a ride. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can only imagine, yeah. So, so for the audience, I just kind of want to ask... Um, can you describe a little bit what type of research you do and like what sort of discoveries you've made while while doing that? Okay. Well, I uh, I've been doing research for well since 1990, so we're talking 30 years. I started at UCLA as a PhD student, and uh, I my research has been basic. Most of it has been revolving around transcription, which transcription is how genes are turned on and off. So, you know, you basically, everybody has their genomes are full of DNA, which have genes on them, but every cell has some genes on and some genes off in a different manner. And what I've mostly been studying is basic transcription. How do these genes turn on and off? So in my uh, PhD thesis, I studied one of the core proteins that turn genes on and off and tried to figure out what was interacting with that core protein, which was called TBP. And I tried to figure out how various proteins stuck to it. And when we started, there was only a few numbers of proteins that were involved. And uh, that number has started in the low dozens and is now in the many, many hundreds of different proteins. So we were able to discover uh, back my PhD. I was able to discover s- several of the different proteins and how they interacted with this core TBP protein. I then have gone on to uh, join the Mark Potashny lab, starting at Harvard, and then moved a little later. Uh, and we have been studying how these proteins are involved in turning a gene on and how these things called transcriptional activators interact with these core proteins and how in these giant complexes assemble to turn a gene on. And then since that point, we've gone on and tried to work out how, how the bigger regulatory things happen as how these transcription factors bind really far away from where the gene is and then actually end up turning the gene on from a very long distance, like millions of base pairs away. So, and, and then that has transitioned into trying to figure out actually how different tumors have different patterns of these genes and use that to actually classify. So a long path of starting from transcription 
and then moving into how in the world do we, tumors have different patterns of these things and then you use that to actually try to define which types of tumors they are. So wow. it's a bit long run winded. I uh, probably should have tightened that up a little. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it makes sense though. So it sounds like what you do, you do is you study transcription. That's where you started for SVU yeah. PhD. And then as you progress through your career after graduating, you ended up looking more into towards tumor classification, correct? Yeah, yeah. Basically, we fell into tumor classification kind of backwards because we were studying these enhancers, these things that are a long way from the gene, but actually loop over and turn the gene on. We found that even though in different cell types, one cell type may have one set of enhancers and a different cell type may have a completely different set of enhancers. And we discovered that that in in, in that it was also true in tumors, that different types of tumors had different enhancers. And so we went backwards and said, hold it. Does that mean if I look at enhancers, I can figure out what tumor type it is? Oh, so it, okay. So it was a back, we were trying to figure out just how genes are turned on and off. And we found that these enhancers are a very important part, and we and many, many, many others have found that these enhancers are a very important part of turning the genes on, and that different cell types have different enhancer patterns. So we just reversed it around and said, well, can we tell what type of tumor it is by looking at the type of enhancers? So it was by studying a basic fundamental thing, how you know enhancers turn genes on, we accidentally found that maybe we can figure out what tumor type it is by looking at the enhancers. So it, it was basic fundamental research that turned around and maybe turns into a practical uh, uh, output. Okay, cool. Yeah, and I was wondering, because as you were talking about this, um, how did you get inspired to pursue research in the first place? Like, what was your path before the, going for the PhD? Uh, okay, well, actually, I started off as actually a psych major at San Diego State, <laughs> but um, and in fact, pretty much took all the courses for it, but slowly got frustrated with the subject. I found I didn't think it was rigorous enough, and I didn't think that the subject matter, that the, especially the way it was being taught there, was really... Uh, on a lot of scientifically sound basis. I thought there was a lot of, now, and that's not all of psychology, but at least the way I was learning it, it didn't feel to me that it, I was learning. And at the time, so I was searching around for some other subject to try to switch to. And actually I was reading in the newspaper about this professor, Mark Potashny, who I still work for, uh, was founding a biotech company that was taking genes from one, uh, you know, from one organism and sticking them into another organism and using it to make uh, biological products. That uh, and he ended up founding one of the first biotech companies out there. And so, when a friend of mine uh, called up and said, "You know, uh, let's transfer to UCLA 
together because he was at UCI, I was at San Diego State, and he said he just wants more of a college experience. And I was sort of like, well, I'm done with the psychology thing anyways. I transferred to UCLA and took up microbiology, which is the closest subject to this genetic engineering thing that was just starting up uh, at that time. And this would have been the mid-80s at that point. So I ended up getting a uh, uh, BS at UCLA, went off and worked for a biotech company for a couple of years, and then went back and got a PhD at UCLA. And okay. so it, it started with this biotech thing. And, but then I, as I learned microbiology and biology a lot more, I realized that one of the keys to this whole uh, development of a whole organism was that the genes are being turned on and off and it's the regulation of the genes that seems to be a very important step in this whole process. So that kind of pushed me more towards transcription. Okay, interesting. And um, what was your experience like working for a biotech company? Because I, I just noticed that you mentioned that. Yeah. Uh, well, it was, uh, it, these were the early days of uh, biotech companies and, and um, I, the first one, uh, uh, I work for, they were out trying to find a, well, actually one of the major projects, they were trying to find a bone growth factor. It was a, you know, if for severe breaks, sometimes the healing process isn't very good. And they had previously found a protein that if they inject into a wound, it helps the wound feel get better. But they wanted to then clone that. And I actually, uh, uh, used the brand new technique called PCR, which you may have heard a few times in the news lately because that's how they detect the virus. Yeah, That had just been discovered, and I used that technique to go ahead and find the actual DNA for the bone growth factor to find the sequence for it. And it was, it was such an early days in PCR, which is a technique that, that has a bunch of temperature switches that you to make DNA and you have to use three different temperatures at various minutes. I actually manually did it before the machines came out and had three different temperature blocks where I moved tubes around the temperature blocks every few minutes of over like two or three hour course of time to, to kind of do that. So, you know, it was, it was a new time. Unfortunately, these companies, most that company, kind of failed because, you know, it was, you know, it was the early days and they got locked up on things and didn't quite break through. And we've gone through three levels of biotech, three waves of biotechs where they come up, they get a lot of money and then they don't quite fulfill their promise. And then they kind of drift away. And then the next round and the next round, and we're in multiple different rounds. They're getting better and better at it, but it was, it was the early days, and while I was working on that project, even though we were able to clone it, I could tell they were going to lose the game. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's interesting coming from like the perspective of someone working in the field, yeah, the research side of it. And like, what did you notice, at least working in that space, how that differed from what you're doing now or during your PhD work? It, well, it's the it was a lot more goal oriented. They needed a product. And so 
they needed all, you know, everything was focused on getting the steps to first, we've got to clone the gene, then we've got to, you know, then we've got to figure out how to make the gene inside a bacterium or something like that. And then we got to be able to uh, export it out and then turn that into a product, which is very goal oriented as we want an exact product here that we can ultimately you know, sell. Where when you get to the PhD program, the the goal isn't necessarily get to an end product, although sometimes you can, it's more to figure out how things work. And so the goals were how to understand how transcription turns on and off rather than to make something that you could cure a disease in or something like that, which second is a worthy goal but it's not always easily achievable if you don't understand the first part. <laughs> right. That makes sense. Yeah. So it's, it's, you come, sometimes you can't make it to the, to your goal because you don't understand enough of what's going on. And so, you know, in a sense, it's better to understand things and then realize, ah, I can now do that with it, which, right. which some is sort of how I ended up working on, classifying tumors, even though I started my work trying to figure out how genes turn on and off. You wouldn't think one led to the other. But if my goal was to start, I want to classify tumors, but didn't understand how the genes turned on and off, it wouldn't be easy to find. I I wouldn't have this technique or be able to find this technique. So, So the big difference is your goals. Interesting. That makes sense, though. Thank you. And I was also curious, like, as you were talking about doing research and kind of like, you kind of hint a little bit, like, what are some like setbacks that you usually face when you're doing your research and like, how do you overcome those? Yeah. I, the biggest things that always, that always leads to your frustration and why you don't get to your goal as fast as possible, because the system's a lot more complicated than you ever think it is. <laughs> when I, for example, when I talked about the PhD program, when I started, we thought there was only going to be a dozen or so proteins involved in this. And so my, the way I designed my project was thinking, oh, there's only going to be a dozen or so of these proteins coming together. So let's figure out, if we can figure out how everybody's coming together, we might be able to understand how it works. Turns out, though, it wasn't a dozen and it's probably not even limited to a hundred. It's probably in the many hundreds. And so the approach that I took, assuming the simpler system, didn't quite get me as far as I wanted it to get me because it was so much more complicated than we ever thought it would be. And that's been the step, each step along the, the pathway that I've taken has always been, it's a lot more complicated than you ever think it's going to be. And which makes you have to broaden out and think a little, little wider. So the biggest setbacks has always been biology is a lot more complicated than I thought it would be when I started. And every time, every round, it always gets more complicated. <laughs> so it, yeah, that would probably be some of the biggest setbacks is assuming that it's going to be easier than you thought it was. <laughs> gotcha. But that's why it's a challenge and why it's interesting, but also, and why we haven't ultimately solved all our problems. <laughs> and that does seem to be kind of relevant for like a lot of other fields. Like you might think it's simpler than it really is, but once you yes. dig deep, it's just like you un- unravel this web of just complexity. Yes. Yes. And that's always the problem. And the, the challenge is 
is, you know, as we've been getting better and better techniques to measure this stuff, you know, when I started my PhD, I, I was a very data heavy guy and I had a few hundred data points in a few different experiments. Nowadays, I can, I can send off DNA to a sequencer and I get back billions of data points. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So that is been a huge challenge is how do you deal with all this data? You know, just even some of the trivial things. How do you even transfer files when you're talking about terabytes at a time? <laughs> right. Yikes. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, speaking of techniques, I, I noticed when I was looking at your uh, research yeah. and your website, I noticed that you write about quantitating nucleosome formation. Yes. Do you want to explain what that is for the audience? Okay. Yeah. So when I talked earlier about these things called enhancers, they're stretches of DNA that these things called transcriptional activators bind to. But the DNA itself is wrapped in these things called nucleosomes. And so there's this big protein complex the DNA wraps a couple times around, and then the whole DNA is covered with this. In order for those transcription factors to come and stick to the DNA, the nucleosomes that are there have to go away. So that's just naked DNA. So what we're doing was trying to measure these nucleosomes on the DNA and to watch them go away. Because one of the questions is, is how do they go away? Who decides? Is it, does the nucleosome go away and then the transcription factor come in? Or does the transcription factor come in and get rid of the nucleosomes? And so I uh, developed a way to measure those nucleosomes inside a cell and watch the nucleosome go away. And so while the gene is being turned on by either the enhancer being formed or the gene itself being transcribed, we can watch those nucleosomes and watch them disappear and then see other proteins show up at the same time and then watch as the same forms to try to discern who's doing what to whom. Sometimes, though, you get the answer is the nucleosomes go away and these other guys come in, but you still don't have the answer who did what to whom. <laughs> and in fact, right. it's still an active argument in the field. <laughs> I have my biases, but other people have different biases. <laughs> right. And I think you, uh, you kind of touched on this, too, how like how I like tech, new techniques like this, like change the way that you do research or just like the field in general. Yeah, it's. One of the most exciting things about being in the field is how much the techniques have advanced. They have really accelerated a lot. When I started, you know, the amount of work it took just to measure the, the ACGT sequence of the DNA, you know, I would spend a whole week and a lot of work to grind out of, you know, a couple hundred base pairs of answer to read that sequence. Nowadays, I, I uh, send off a thing of DNA and I come back with billions and billions of base pairs of sequence every time. So those, that advancement has really changed the way it, you know, we do things. When I started, even going through my PhD, I didn't have a single math class. They didn't even teach us how to do a standard deviation. And, but if you're doing it with a billion data points, you better be pretty familiar with statistics and analysis, and you better even be able to manage databases and program computers and do a lot of stuff like that. So that has changed our field 
massively. And the problem is necessarily that the people who are trained before the all those numbers understand how to do those numbers. So there's a language problem between the biologists who think in biological questions and essentially statisticians and mathematicians who think in a completely different manner. And it's been a long, hard slog to try to figure out how to communicate with each other to where you can under people can understand each other, let alone. uh, Yeah. So yeah, the technology has really zoomed fast and, and so the biggest thing is, you know, grabbing on and staying at least present. whole you know keeping up with the the game as it's moved along yeah definitely and i i was actually curious too like um since you were talking about kind of having to to collaborate with different people like mathematicians and statisticians um and this is kind of like a double question so the first question is how what like advice do you have for people to keep up and learn how to manage all these new technologies as they come along and what have you noticed has changed in terms of collaboration not just with like statisticians and mathematicians as time went on well, your it, career. Yeah, it, the amount of collaboration has grown exponentially. It's like when I started, a paper with four authors was pretty typical. You would not, you know, you could have two authors, you do one author papers, two, three. Now, most of the papers I, I see, there's 20, 50 or even a dot, 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 and you have to go to the back page and see a list of 400 different <laughs> authors listed on some of these papers. So, yeah, it is, you almost have to deal with lots and lots of other people. You can't work alone because the techniques are so broad, are so different style, no single person can ever learn them all. You have to sort of depend that other people have things that, and you have to be able to use other things. So projects get bigger and bigger and bigger, and you have to deal with lots of different people or you're, you're going to get lost. And some, some is you're going to have to trust other people because you may not, you know, most people aren't, you know, bi- biologists aren't trained in advanced mathematics, and so you're going to have to trust that. The problem is, is you know, you don't. It's not necessarily everybody's. Even though they're a mathematician, is dealing with you know things well, or the biologists are doing things well, and each person has to you know it's a it's a challenge to try to figure it out, even though you might not be an expert. So, but yeah, the the thing is, is you have to collaborate a lot more and more and more as time has moved on. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I noticed, um, for example, like I do I do research in eating disorders and I was reading a, a, GWAS, a gene-wide association study. Yeah. And I was, I think it was like two pages full of just the author's names. And it took me forever just to go through all of that. And so, it's, so it is interesting seeing how, how much there is in terms of like collaboration across fields or yeah. within the same field even. But I, yeah, but I'm not sure if I heard heard you talk about adapting to the new technology. Oh yeah. There you just, you have to keep reading the papers. You right. when papers come out, you have to read and it can't just be a cursory thing. Yes. Sometimes have to go back to the methods section and you may not completely understand the math behind it, but you could get, you have to try to understand what they're doing, what they're attempting to do. And 
in some cases, you're going to have to learn a little math. <laughs> right. So part of it is just keeping up with the papers as new papers come along with nice big claims that, you know, biologically you think is interesting. Sometimes flip to the back, go to the methods, and even Google it. I, I use, I still use a wiki for when they, they talk about a mathematical technique that I hadn't heard the name of before. The first thing I'll do is I'll wiki it and see what, what wiki says and see, okay, what's it based on? How's it going? And then you have to, you know, follow these things through. It's not that you need to know all the details of everything that's going on, but you have to kind of get a handle on what it is what it is that they're really using. And so in some ways you have to learn a little bit of it. You can't be completely ignorant of the math side before it. So you're going to have to push your way into that. Not that you need to know, be able to derive theories or be able to program it, but you have to be able to get what is really going there. So read the details in the back that of the, of the paper and look at the methods and see if you can follow through. But fortunately, there's a lot of stuff out there. When you publish these papers with all this bioinformatics in there, you can download the stuff. You, they have a program. You can, you can download it. They've probably done something. There's probably a lot of elaboration on it. And if you think that it might be useful for something you're going to do, dig into the details and, or call them up. Talk to them. <laughs> yeah, and that kind of goes into collaboration. So it's kind of like yeah. it helps for both ends. You're not only having to solve more complex issues with different lenses, but also you're learning as you're going along with it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you can't just be completely ignorant and just assume, oh, they know what they're doing. I'll just accept it. Right. You, you pretty much have to at least go halfway to them to mm. understand what it is that they're really basing it on. Gotcha. Because, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of BS out there, too. And there's a lot of people selling stuff that you might not, that really doesn't do what they claim it's going to do. That's fair. Out of curiosity, so since we talked a little bit about more about what your research is in terms of tumor classification, gene enhancers, how does your lab work eventually like, benefit people? Because I noticed, like, at least for people that I talk to who are students, they're always wondering, how does basic research impact people? Yeah. Okay. Well, in this particular project is probably been the most practical. In fact, it's, I say myself, this is the first time I've ever, ever done anything practical. <laughs> <laughs> and so what is practical about it is, is tumors are pretty complicated and we don't even know necessarily all the different types of tumors there are. You know, mm. when you look at, uh, you know, a tumor through a microscope, it, you know, looks like this, but some patients respond well to a drug. Some patients don't respond well to the drug and they're called the same type of tumor. It might be that underlying it, there are differences between those tumors. We just don't see them by looking at a microscope or by looking at something else. So if you can find more information on what is making the tumor the way it is, you might be able to discover, ah, there's actually what we thought was one type of tumor is actually two types of tumors. There's one that responds to the drug and there's one that doesn't respond to the drug. And so if you can find differences that you couldn't see before, then it might turn out that there's a different course of action to that. So 
this is practical in the sense that if we can find new types that we didn't see before, this could lead to practical differences that you would never have, uh, you know, you wouldn't have had before. For example, if you think you've got a new drug that might work on the tumor, but it actually really only works on a subset of those tumors, and it's on, that subset's only 5%, you hand them to all these patients, you actually did cure that person, but you don't see it in the data because the 95% who it didn't react to show that it didn't work, so you then go on to the next one. So discovering something like this actually has real good implications for research in the future because that is, uh, you know, one of the big problems with cancer is, you know, they're complicated. As I said before, everything's more complicated than you think it is when you start. Yep. And if you can actually classify differences, then it has true practical, you know, patient outcome differences. So at this point, we aren't confident that we have discovered any new types, but we are confident that we can determine types by just looking at these enhancers. So, you know, the goal of the future is to find types that we couldn't see before. Right. That makes sense. And I was curious, are you aware of any like biotech or medtech companies that are starting that are trying to use technology like this or have attempted to do this? Actually, there's many. This has been going on for a while with the minute uh, or once genome-wide techniques, the ability to measure all the DNA in the cell at once or all the transcription in the cell at once or, or all the enhancers are at once. Every time people will head down the pathway to, okay, maybe we can develop this. And, and there's been some minor successes along that line. Uh, they've uh, developed a test for a particular subtype of a breast cancer that mm -hmm. is measuring like 20 or so different genes. And if they come into this pattern, it's this type. And if it comes into that pattern, it's that type. So there, there are definitely companies trying to do it with some of the genome-wide techniques. What we're doing that's kind of original here is we're using not the transcription, but the guys, the enhancers that drive the transcription. Right. And we think that there's probably more information in the enhancers than there are in the actual genes because okay. you could have the same gene on in two different cells, but you have completely different enhancer patterns. If you looked at the gene, the cells would look the same, but if you looked at the enhancers, they would look different. So uh, I don't know of a company currently using the enhancer patterns, but I wouldn't be surprised if one people aren't trying it right now anyways. Right. That's more like a future thing, most likely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's basically if if it gets established that you really can by just looking at the enhancers to it, I assume people will try it. That makes sense. Cool. Cool. Thank you. And that's all that's great to hear. Cause I like it's interesting kind of seeing how basic research gets translated into either um, biotech or into like medicine. And that's always like really great to hear just just out of personal reasons, you know, just because I, yeah. I, like, I do research and sometimes when I'm doing, when I'm doing my job, I'm like pipetting stuff and I'm just like, okay, what is this going to lead to eventually? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, fortunately I started down the line just being curious about mm -hmm. transcription. To me, I wanted to understand how in the world do organisms develop the way they are? How can you be so complicated 
and all these different cell types and stuff like that. So to me, it seemed like the gene regulation was one of the keys to this whole process. So it was intellectual curiosity to me mm. for, for the most part. But as we progressed down the road, it turned out that a practical thing popped out is that, oh, wow, maybe we can tell tumors apart by looking at the enhancers. So I, my goals were intellectual curiosity, but I may have stumbled across practical <laughs> yeah. things. So, so that is, is gratifying. And we went down the course because well, it's practical. Let's let's actually use this for something. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And so, actually, I'm curious. Have you thought of or seen or thought of any, like, non-medical practical implications for your research? As far – well, actually, for the most part, when you're dealing with biology, with the practical application is usually medicine. Right. Now, non-medicine hmm. – I haven't actually really thought about that, thought through that question too much. Beyond, yeah, I always think of the output, the practical output is almost always medicine. Uh, the non-practical is the understanding, and, and which if you have an understanding, you may be able to turn it into the practical, but in itself, it is the understanding is not the practical. So... Actually, I don't know. I don't have to know if I have a good answer to that. Oh yeah, no worries. I was just kind. Of, I was just curious. <laughs> cool. Yeah, and um, so I'm just curious. What you um, in terms of say, so, someone who wants to go pursue a PhD, they're currently, let's say, they're in college right now. They're like, I'm interested, but I have no idea what to do. Like, what advice would you offer someone to look into research or like how to find out what they're interested in specifically? Well, if to Research is not for everybody. I've mm -hmm. seen a lot of people who say they want to get into research. They start and then they, uh, uh, you know, after six months or a year pipetting away, they realize that it isn't for them. So if you think you want to go into research, try it. So if you're an undergraduate, find the labs that are on there in the subject that you think you might be interested in volunteer. I, I started out washing dishes in a, a lab, <laughs> slowly doing the bench work and realized that I liked it. The most important thing would be to actually sit down and do bench work and to see if you really like doing it. Because it, that is an absolute requirement. Because if you don't like doing this stuff, it will be very frustrating. And I've watched a lot of people sort of peter out just because they didn't like it, and but they've gone pretty far. They're well into a PhD program when they realize that they don't want to do this. So before you ever jump into a PhD program or graduate work in some, some form, do it as an undergraduate to see if you really like this because it's not for everybody. It's, you know, it's a lot of, you know, boring manual labor in many ways. <laughs> and, and that is not necessarily uh, for everybody. You have to be able to simultaneously get excited about what you're doing, enjoy the intellectual side of it while you're doing boring manual labor, <laughs> assembly line type stuff, you know, pipetting back and forth into 96 well plates repeatedly all day long has to count for something beyond that. So my practical advice, if anybody wants to go into research, 
is do it in a lab. So as an undergraduate, just, you know, go bug professors. Do you need a, someone else to do? Volunteer. Just get in a lab, start pipetting, start doing, or whatever field you want to go into, start doing it and seeing if, you, if it's made for you. That, to me, is by far the, the best advice if you wanted to do it is try it out because many people, it's just not for them. It's, they don't right. like it. <laughs> yeah and um just and also what are what's like the most rewarding part of your career in your opinion i enjoy thinking of a new problem and or something that i think i might be able to get somewhere at and then actually being able to start it up all on my own and try it like when when we first thought oh wow uh we might be able to classify tumors from this. It was really exciting to like get a tumor, chop it up, do my technique on it, and then run it through this, the, the sequencer and have it come back and have it actually work. The satisfaction is to be able to think of something, put it actually practically go ahead and do it and have it come back and honestly surprise you a few times of how well it ended up working because many times it doesn't you know i've gone down many paths and then circled around in a cul-de-sac for a little while and then given up and but the most satisfying thing is actually to think of an idea actually practically do it do actual data and then churn out and find out that wow this really works like we had sometimes when i started doing this classification thing that the preliminary diagnosis of the patient was, oh, this is this type of tumor. And I kept coming back and going, it doesn't look like this. This, this doesn't look like that. And then re-quizzing the, the medical team, and then they go back and double look. And so, oh, you're right. We got the classification wrong. It is that type. So when you actually, probably the most satisfying thing is when you go through something, you think it's going to work that way, and you actually find out, it really did work that well. And so that, that was kind of the more satisfying thing is to think of an idea, start it, get it go and have it actually come out the way you thought it would in the first place. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, and I can see also, like, I think we talked a little bit about like the whole practicality of research. Yeah. So it kind of sounds a little bit like seeing that come into fruition and see. Yeah. Okay. yeah. To see the, that it actually, the idea actually works. <laughs> well, that's awesome. And, most of the time it doesn't. That's the hard part about science is most of the things you think about are wrong. That <laughs> right. you, you know, you thought it might work like this way. And it was like, nah, not that simple. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds very humbling actually. <laughs> oh, it, it's very humbling. You have to, you have to get it, be satisfied with one out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so my last question is here. Um, like if you were to like redo your first couple of years of your career, what would you do differently? Huh. I, th I think I would have moved towards more towards the math side of what I was doing quicker. Hmm. I would have jumped, even though I, I felt like I was pushing in that direction a lot to begin with. Uh, in retrospect, I should have pushed further and faster and assumed that it was going to go much more towards this high mathematical side. So probably the way I would have gone back and taken a much more math classes <laughs> in retrospect, awesome. rather than yeah. try to catch up with the math as, as it 
kept coming out rather starting out and being more mathematical to begin with. So, but that's a hindsight thing and doesn't necessarily predict for the future because right now everybody knows that the math is, is a big part and they have whole bioinformatic programs and stuff like that. So, yeah. So I guess in, in retrospect, I would have pushed even further into the math, got more basic math training and, and been more dependent on the math side. Yeah, no, it sounds like that, like that's a good move too. Just like given what we, what we talked about earlier, but just how everything's more math based, especially now like with all the data we're working with, what we said, terabytes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, yeah, I get back huge amounts of data all the time. I'm currently with collaborating with another lab. I'm sending them their data. I started sending it yesterday morning. It's still not there yet. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) It's still going over. It's got a long script that's just running through. My computer's talking to their computer, and it's just slowly transferring the data. (laughs) Yikes. (laughs) That's that's so odd. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for taking the time to interview, and um, I appreciate it. It's been a nice discussion, Alex. (laughs) Awesome. Appreciate it, yeah. And thank you for joining me on this episode of Turtlenecks on Neurotech. This is AJ, and I'm signing off.